0: But you know all I get is the same thing i so kindly, mm-hmm. Mister. Won't you kindly give me some change? That's a lifetime ago Remember I like Ike Remember Jim Crow On a bus in Montgomery Southern town That black woman started something She said My soul is resting Thousands walk to work in the morning light Thousands walk home through the rain at night Every day for a week, every week for a month
1: Flat, black, plastic, vinyl, records, round, played, mixed, all for you every Saturday from noon to two by Scott o. amazing artist, music DJ, vinyl enthusiast flat black plastic
2: my name is breakfast and I'm running for chancellor of the United States of America for too long we have gone without a chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, look good on camera, end all hunger, crime. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. Set sail for the seas of Radio. FM. From there, you can capture. I half would not funny but comedy day will be a guarantee yet yeah, anyway
1: thank you for turning into an old episode of everyday conversations on race for everyday people Sima Lieberman can't be here today but her show will be, we're going to play an old episode from uh, You're listening to Everyday Conversations on Race with Everyday People with Sima Lieberman here on MutinyRadio.fm as she is looking for another song to play for you guys. We're, that was just from her guest who's going to be here. We're trying to negotiate the dead air. We're not having dead air here. There's always something to talk about on Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People with Sima Lieberman, who loves hip-hop, so that's awesome, and it's going to be educating me on things more than just Lauren Hill. So <laughs> that was a joke for those who have, in the mid-90s, the miseducation of Lauren Hill, a hip-hop record.
3: Hi now we're going to be listening now we're going to be listening to Jada Imani and Kaylee J and NSC. DJ okay.
4: what your vision is, my sisters I've been building with. Honoring the feminine, cause masculine we swimming in. A patriarch soon to fall, running till your paw, paw running down the dog off guard with the paws up. pause, let nature do her thing. If we keep interfering, she may wipe us all away. And everybody busy and cranking the machine. And wonder why so cyclically repeating history. What you think? I think it's time to get bank for ourselves. Own it or throw it away. Currently, currencies losing value quickly. The land to you than planting food, that's where the rich be How's that feel? How's that for real? When you can't kill, cause you need to rebuild When you can't stay still on your knees A refill of the handy appeal Pharmacy, a bleed drill For the trip it is to fill the bliss of ignorance, decease a Burst of a queen, attack, conquer, misery Repentance from living in a den of ill-conceived Till the moment that we meet A reason that we breathe uh, When I compromise our sweet air to appease your blue vest because we got the right to be here, so we take our truth back. All on my own in a ghost town. Hi,
3: everyone, this is Simba the Inclusionist with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, and you've just been listening to my next guest, Jada Imani. Hey. <laughs> hey Jada, so Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People where we bring people together from different backgrounds, different races, different colors, to have comfortable conversations on race, to be able to eliminate fear of difference and bring people together. If you have ever wanted to talk about race, but were afraid to do so because you're afraid of saying the wrong thing, or you're afraid of not being heard or being ignored, then this podcast is for you. So today... I want to introduce my next guest, who I met recently, at a benefit for uh, bringing hip-hop therapy to, to people who've been in trauma, who've been traumatized. Her name is Jada Imani. She's an MC and head of a homegrown project called Tattoo Vision from the Bay, by the way, of St. Oh, you're from St. Louis, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought you're from, oh, you not, so you're not even from the Bay Area, okay. I've been
5: here for 10 years. I've been here since elementary school, so. Okay, then you you're know. from
3: here. <laughs> oh, I'm not from here. I've been here for over 35 years. I'm from the Bronx, but I'm still from the Bronx. Okay? <laughs> so this year, Jada released a concept video directed by Aroma called Drip, available on Tattoo Vision YouTube. And uh, I played it earlier. Don't miss it. You got you to you look it up and listen to it. Jada began emceeing and curating eva- events at the age of 16. 16, y'all. When I was 16, never even, well, we didn't have these kind of events when I was 16. So since then, she's curated for Oakland Museum of California, Life is Living Festival, Kaiser Permanente, Aspen Ideas Festival, and more, and we're going to hear more about her. She also leads workshops for public schools and special bookings. Jada hopes to use performance and healing arts to connect disparate populations to promote health, critical thinking, and self-love. And that is what Everyday Conversations on Race is all about. Yay. <laughs> so, Jada, people can't see you. Oh, first of all, let me just say I'm so happy to have you I'm
5: here. so happy to be here. Thank you. And thank you so much. Oh, okay.
3: And let me just say this. I just started recording recently at Radio Meet uh, this is a cool spot. It yeah, it's a cool. It is a really cool spot.
5: Yeah, shout out Old Soul Collective. I've seen Equipto and Old Soul Collective here too. Yeah, it's I good. just connected that. It's
3: good. Yeah. So this is. So I'm. I'm new with all the equip. You know, you heard me record before. I had my own equipment. Now this is much more sophisticated. <laughs> so we may have a glitch too, but that's okay. It's cool. So Jada, would you just um. Describe yourself since people can't really see you. Yeah. Not yet anyway.
5: Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'm both of my parents are black and white, fifty fifty. So I'm a light skinned black girl. Um, I have caramel skin, uh kind of petite features kind of uh full lips but like a kind of a like pointy nose it's like a interesting combination between black and white features uh, I've, i present very hip-hop i think i kind of have like a street hip-hop look but i also like to mix it with the professional look so maybe you'll find me wearing some creased slacks with some adidas <laughs> you know what i mean but yeah uh, right now i'm wearing i have braids but sometimes i have very thick nappy hair so sometimes i'm wearing afro um yeah
3: yeah, and they could they could look and they could look you up, which we're sure people will do. So today we have cross race conversation, and we also have a cross generational conversation, because as many of you know, I am a baby boomer. So okay, we're we're fixing the microphone right now. Okay, cool. All right, Jada, it was so great to meet you and to hear and to hear you perform. I was so impressed so I said well I gotta have this woman on my podcast
5: thank you you just like jumped out like a lion I'm like hey <laughs> I loved your enthusiasm and passion for this
3: well you know this podcast is like my life this is this is my dream for so many years mm. now If I was probably much younger and it was today, I probably would be able to do my podcast and one day say, hey, I want to get a podcast going on race. Okay, let's go. And it would be happening. But anyway, this is how it is and it is how it is. Or what they used to say when I was growing up is what it is is what it is and what it was is what it was. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, Jada, tell me, uh, why do you think it's important for people to talk about race across race?
5: Why do I think so? Yeah. Um, I think it's important for people to talk about race all across the board. I'll start with that and then get to across race. Um, Okay. I think that race is an important topic because we're all being influenced by it. Um, And uh, most of the times it's in a way that we haven't yet examined. Like, we are not aware that we're being influenced, but we are by the way that people look. I really do think that there's been tons of experiments done that show how, on a subconscious level, we're all, um, you know, motivated, influenced by how we see people, the the color of people's skin. And um, the more that we examine that, the more that we can um, have the power to control that and not let that control us so we need to start thinking about race and being really honest about what we think about different races because we all have different prejudices and assumptions um and assumption yeah it's a lot better to examine them than leave them unexamined in terms of talking like cross race that's a really interesting thing being black and white i'm on like i have the two like polarities that are in this country that's like the longest lasting war almost is like um black and white like you can't get like a more opposite than that you know so it's really interesting thinking about bringing these two sides together um although I also kind of subscribe to the belief that It would be good to start within your racial group and talk to your folks first and then once you're more healed and more clear within your community then begin to talk to other groups um and for myself being in the middle like i'm in a very peculiar situation when with the conversation about race so hopefully i can be used by the greater force of good to um yield like my interesting middle positioning to like help both sides but i'm still figuring out my role there but yeah i think we all need to start talking about race and starting in our own homes and really starting um to like you know really examine our own hidden beliefs
3: yeah and i like what you said about starting in our own homes
5: Mm
3: -hmm. i was at i went to see a documentary which was amazing about the oakland interfaith choir got the oakland interfaith gospel choir And you know that's very multicultural, multiracial, multi multi everything—age, religion. You know they got Christians, Catholics, Jews, Buddhists, all kinds of people in it. And a lot of people said, "Well, this is what America needs to look like. This is what you know people hang together." I said, "But you know what? This is what people's living rooms need to look like." Mm. I said because. It's not enough, you know, you just like go to an event, which is cool. I mean, I, I, everybody should go to events that are from different cultures. But if you don't really get to talk to people, and then you want to be able to talk to people like everyday conversation. But I also like what you said about people need to first start talking amongst themselves, get healed, and then start talking. Now, one of the problems I see sometimes is, um, and this is just my own experience, my own observation is a lot of times like I'll see a lot of white people and this is not to disparage anybody because I think anything anybody does to eliminate racism is important. But sometimes I'll see white people only talking to white people about Mm -hmm. race. They go, well, first we only have to talk, you know, I got to talk to white people about race. But then what I don't see enough of is then branching out and reaching out mm-hmm. And you got to be able to branch out And reach out and know That maybe you're going to be uncomfortable Maybe you're gonna talk about something else. Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist here With Everyday Conversations on Race For Everyday People Where we bring people together from different backgrounds To have a cross-race conversation about race If you've ever wanted to talk about race But were afraid of saying the wrong thing Or afraid of not being heard Then listen in I'm so excited to introduce my guests today, who are two very close friends of mine, Juan Lopez and Sid Real. And Juan and Sid and myself and three other people are co-authors of a book called The Diversity Calling, Building Community One Story at a Time. So Juan and then Sid, because people can't see you, I'm going to ask you to please share a little bit about yourself, who you are, a little bit about your background, okay? Okay. So let's start
6: with you, Juan. Well, as you said, Juan Lopez. I grew up in Pittsburgh and Concord, California. I run a business called Amistad Associates. I have been involved in diversity, equity, inclusion, organizational change, uh, community organizing for a number of years. I... um, I guess I was blessed to be called into this work in about 1982 or so with uh, Dr. Price Cobbs. And it's a calling that's continued for me to discuss not only diversity, but all the dimensions uh, that come about when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion.
3: Now, we're all different in in different ways, everybody who wrote the book. So would you just share something about uh, your cultural background and maybe your
6: age or your generation? You don't have to say exactly how old you are, just your generation. I have no problem sharing my age. I'm 63. (laughs) I identify as Chicano. I'm third-generation Chicano in the Bay Area. Family moved to Pittsburgh in 1928. Um, I think... Probably the descriptor of me would be, I'm about 5'8". I like to wear hats and (laughs) earrings. (laughs) And I'm I'm passionate about all of this different work, both not only diversity, but uh, Chicano activism and spirituality.
3: Okay. Now, Sid Real, tell us a little bit about you. And then we're going to talk about, then we're going to get to talking about race. So go
7: ahead. Okay, I'm Sedalia, and I go by Sid Real. I was born and raised in Berkeley, California. I'm one of six children. My family originates from northeast Texas and came to the Berkeley area in around 1943, I believe. My parents came away to, I mean, they came this way to work in the shipyards during the war, and the other fact about them, uh, we're an African-American family and they were getting away from lynchings and other atrocities that were happening in Texas during the 40s.
3: So my question now is, uh, we could start with you, Sid, and then, and then go back to Juan. Why is race, why is talking, why is, why is race and why is talking about race important to you?
7: Talking about race is important to me because it's so much a part of my life. Growing up in Berkeley, which is known as a very uh, informal and uh, progressive town, also has had its issues with race, including redlining in neighborhoods and other situations where people of different races are kept apart even though it's an international community. So I experienced some racism growing up and it's always been a part of what's happening in my life. And then as an adult and going into college, I had an interest in education and training. And of course, part of what you experience there is what's happening with respect to how Students of color are often treated differently and in many cases are treated as less than compared to their white counterparts. Well,
3: Sid, would you uh, share one? You said you were exposed to racism when you were young or you were victimized by racism when you were young. Could you give us an example? Because a lot of people really don't understand what
7: that means. I, I can think back to the third grade being in a classroom, and our, our classroom was multiracial, but it just so happened that a new white family came in who came from either Mississippi or Alabama. They'd been a sharecropper family, lived down the street from me, and my third grade teacher had the audacity to pair me up with him for us to share a book. And um, he started calling me the N-word and pushing me and saying that he wanted his own book and that sort of thing. And when I went home crying and told my mother about it, she told all of us, get whatever you can. Get a broom, get a mop, get anything. You're going to go down there and beat him up and make sure he doesn't do anything like that to you ever again. And so that was my rude awakening. Well, I find that very
3: interesting that even at that young age... Here's this kid coming in to your school or to your class or to your seat and telling you what he wants and calling you names. Not unlike what we've seen here in the Bay Area, even like in Oakland where we've had people come in to neighborhoods that were primarily black, where we've had people come in and start telling black people that they're singing too loud in the church.
7: Singing too loud in the church, having the nerve to barbecue on the lake, all of these different examples of people in their white privilege not seeing that a person of color has just as much right to do and be anything that they want as anybody else so
3: well l- let me let me get to you one uh, tell us t- would you share a story with us about why race is important to you and why it's important that we talk about it
6: growing up race was not always talked about directly but there were many comments and inferences made that i was unclear about growing up um, from my uncles and my aunts and and my mother i think talked in ways that are very much uh, we would describe as internalized depression, and she would make statements about uh, interacting with whites or how whites viewed mexicans and she always talked about it in a less than way. And she always suggested, which was, was a bit complicated because it was hard to read, that you had to be careful because you could be hurt, injured, or, or any number of things because of the way you look. And I think it, it hit me the strongest uh, after President Kennedy was assassinated and I remember coming home and walking into the front room, and my father was home, and he was watching the news, and he was crying. And I was not accustomed to seeing my father cry. And, and he he just kept saying, as he was looking at the the news, saying, "What's going to happen to Mexicans now? What's going to happen to Mexicans now?" And, and I was trying to make sense of this, but essentially, what they were talking about was, in fact based on our uh, ethnicity, how we were being treated, how racism played out, how they experienced racism, and that it never seemed um, like you had the power, but you were always in a position where things or, or people could hurt you, but never talked about directly.
3: Yeah. Now, somebody might say, oh, well, you're sharing stories of when you were younger, but we just had a black president, and are we post-racial? So does racism still exist? Do we still need to talk about race today?
7: I think we need to talk about it now more than ever, because it's really prevalent throughout our experience here in the United States and around the world. I think that uh, people are still being made to feel less than, not having the same opportunities, being questioned about their credibility and their competence in ways that hadn't been happening for a little bit of a while, although I think it was always just a a myth or a hope or a dream that we were post-racial because we had a black president. If anything, some of the ways in which people responded intensified. In some conversations I've had with some of my white friends, they talked about knowing people who were white who woke up when Trump, when, not when Trump got elected, but when Obama got elected and said they couldn't get out of bed because now a black man was the president of the country.
3: Okay. Well, I, so, so did they stay in bed? I wonder, did they stay in bed until Trump got elected? They got out of bed maybe just to go vote?
6: No telling what they decided <laughs> to do. Let me, let me follow up on, on yeah, uh, please. Sid's response. I think it's pretty clear that we have a racist president. I think the comments that he makes about different people, different ethnic groups, and different religious groups, he makes it really clear. Who the others are, and I think when we look at what has happened on the border, with kidnapping, um, what's happened with such brutal policies, says to me that the racism has is become intensified, and you see examples of the protests. You, You hear about more white supremacist groups talking about um, strategizing on inflicting more racism. We see people in the community, in various communities, um, beating up on people of color. And we find a whole lot of mistrust in our communities of color towards police and other authorities. And much of that mistrust is based on how people view each other through the racial lens. So I think, I think now what we're talking about is even more intense. Um, and as Sid said, going from what people wanted to believe as being post-racial to now where we're seeing such obvious uh, expressions of racism is a real clear indication of the current state of where we're at.
3: Well, let's talk for a minute about DICE. Now, I'm part of DICE with the two of you, and we have several other members. Would you uh, talk for a minute a little about about DICE and what DICE is and about the book that people from DICE wrote?
7: Yes, uh, DICE is uh, the acronym for Diversity Community Exchange. The nine authors of the book all met at a conference called Diversity 2000. It's actually... A gathering of diversity and inclusion practitioners that comes together annually to commune with one another learn from each other and in some cases collaborate and work together and one of the things that we decided to do was come together to write a book about our own personal journeys and experiences as a way to talk about our work as a calling And the calling is how we can build community one story at a time. So by hearing about nine different ways people came to be in this work, what their life experiences are, gives people an idea of all of the ways that you can become a part of this diversity and inclusion community through the work that you're doing and doing it by sharing each other's histories listening to one another, and finding ways that the work that we're doing can reach further out into other areas, because we all work in different sort of um, sectors of the employment workforce.
3: Now, some people would say that they've never seen people be able to talk about race. Some people would say, oh, I'd like to talk about race, but I can't, and they don't want to talk to me about it, and blah, 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 blah. In writing this book, would you say that it really encouraged the conversation about race? And if any, somebody was going to read this book, uh, that you think that it would encourage people to talk about race?
6: I think the book, as it said, is a, it's about nine people um, Sid and I, Dr. Jojo Mc- McAnnis, um, Tommy Smith, Santa Linda Marrero, well, you, yeah. Simone Anything? Lieberman, um, and Sonny Massey, and uh, Dr. Marvin Smith, and Nadia Eunice, We all wrote this book, and unfortunately, I would say... Um, well, it's unfortunate because two members of our um, group have passed on. And I don't think it's an accident that, that African American men, those are the two that passed on, um, the impact of racism in their lives and how they shared their stories uh, has had a factor in their uh, longevity. And, and they talked about that and how growing up and dealing with that impacted them and how they saw the world. So I don't think our group was reluctant to talk about race, but we did it in the context of our stories. And I believe all of us have a story. And central to that story is our experience, our identity, how we see ourselves in the world. And our race and our ethnicity is a part of that. And if you can't bring that into the conversation, then there's a central part of who you are in the world that's not being shared. And so we embraced that and felt like, by us coming together and talking about our stories and what we experienced, that we were encouraging others to get together, to share their stories, maybe to write a book, and to talk more and deeply about these kinds of things that have helped shape who we are in the world.
3: Well, what lessons did you learn from each other?
6: I learned uh, to listen more carefully about... The experiences people had, which included racism and sexism, and how it impacted people in terms of their insight, their awareness, their confidence, uh, their capacity to be um, human in the world. I, I, I learned uh, how to appreciate being with people who share such intimate information about each other. And, and these are sacred stories. And when you hear them and, and you approach it with that sense of sacredness, I think we learn more about each other and we learn how we can support each other more effectively.
3: How about you, Sid? What, what are some lessons you learned?
7: Well, I think first and foremost, the notion of hearing someone else's story Requires that you're listening to what they're having to say to you And it's a real lesson in something that a lot of people just don't know how to do Which is to suspend judgment about other people so when you have a notion about who somebody is based on how they look or where they come from and You don't know the story behind who they are as an individual you might make some assumptions about them that are incorrect And by hearing the full story and hearing it from people the way they want to share their story rather than you coming up with the questions about their different aspects of their lives, but them just telling their own personal story, it opens up the opportunity that there may be things that you have in common. You might learn about what some of the differences are, the different approaches people may have to dealing with the same kinds of situations and issues. And so it really expands your way of being, by having that connection with people based on their own personal story.
3: Now, you talked about you talked about assumptions that people might make about each other until they share their stories. Have either of you been in situations where you, where you realized that you had made assumptions about another person based on how they looked or what you knew about them until you heard their stories that, that you'd be able to share with us?
7: Um, Well, I can uh, think about one of our members who passed away, Marvin Smith, a very large, imposing African-American man who was a policeman, and he worked in Parchester Village, North Richmond. I have relatives there who knew him, and Just the fact that he was so large and in charge and imposing and had such a presence, it would make some people reluctant to engage with him. The Marvin I knew was the kindest, sweetest, so approachable kind of person, and you would never know that on the surface just by who he was uh, as somebody who was formerly in law enforcement and then was in the role of the EEO director and diversity manager at the Lawrence Livermore Labs. So he, he made a transition in his career, and I'm sure that he brought that same uh, larger-than-life presence into that kind of work as well.
3: Uh, one, how about you? What assumptions did you have you found that you've made and then said, oh, no, now that I know this person, so not, so not true? Everybody makes assumptions, but a lot of times people don't want to admit that they make assumptions because they think, oh, it's going to make me look bad. So it's very helpful to hear about times when other people admit that they've made assumptions and then that they've been wrong.
6: I've made assumptions uh, about a lot of different people and their motivations and when i've looked at their body language um, i might have thought to myself uh they have a certain belief system or a certain demeanor uh, or they don't like me or they do things and i don't like them and then the narrative in my head just continues to grow in terms of why and uh, i no longer are, or i uh, i mean i should probably say the narrative being that i make this assumption and then I build the story to support that assumption. As I've gotten older, I've worked real hard at, at not trying to put people in boxes because my experience has been that when you get to know somebody across race, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of knowledge and wisdom that they share. And the more you can build an authentic relationship, the more you're able to communicate and share in that way. And assumptions prevent that from happening. So I've I've done that a lot, and could
3: you share what, an example with us?
6: Um, I, when I started um, graduate school, there were certain other graduate students that um, had a demeanor about them. Some of the white folks, uh, and I found that uh, I immediately put them into a, a, a category of being privileged or not knowing anything about my reality or my struggle or what goes on in in our community. And um, I discovered that as I got to know them, they were very knowledgeable about race. They were very committed to dealing with um, ending racism. Um, They were outspoken and um, they became very good friends and allies. Uh, And some of them even um, participated and helped support me in going after some big issues that we had as problems at the school with the dean, who we thought wasn't really looking at bringing more faculty of color in that could speak to the service needs of our community in the Bay Area. Well, when
3: we wrote this book, we had a lot of uh, discussions. What... What do you think, what were some of the challenges? Were there any anything particularly challenging about us all writing the book together, since we all came from such different backgrounds?
7: I think just the very fact that we were from different backgrounds automatically made it a little more complicated to come together and decide how we were going to write this book. And so ultimately, when we all decided to write our own personal stories, it meant that each person's story didn't have to look like the next person's story. You could just totally go out there and write about what you felt was important and significant to put into writing uh, about your own individual story. So it gave us a certain amount of freedom about what we were going to do. And I remember the many, many meetings and gatherings we had where we started sharing little kernels of what we would be writing about and that's where the excitement started really coming in. We also knew Marvin, who was sort of spearheading the whole notion of writing our stories. I think a lot of it came from his own personal fascination about how different we all were uh, in terms of the work we were doing, and our life experiences. And it was the excitement of telling our own story, which for me, was the first time I really put it down on paper about some of the experiences I had, and then the joy of hearing about other people's stories. Uh, We just got really excited about getting the book published, and showing to people and demonstrating how you can be coming from different places but you can have the same purpose in life, the same intent about what you want to do and the work that you're doing, hence the diversity calling as part of the name of the book.
3: How about you, Juan? What were some of the challenges, were there any challenges in bringing so many of us together from such big different backgrounds?
6: Well, I think as people share their stories, some of what happens is you're going through a process of, of remembering these stories, and sometimes there's trauma tied to those stories. And then you decide, do I really want to write about that? And and what we found is that it, it forced us to begin to talk about some of these things that you may not have talked about or you tried to forget. So we created a, a, a bond where we became more open and sometimes stories change what you thought you were going to write about what you ended up writing about it changed yeah mine um, did and and then sometimes you're reading it and you're asking for for some real feedback about what you're talking about and and as i said it's not always easy when you you're trying to put words on paper about these experiences you know i talked about my brother's suicide um, i talked about uh, being knifed I talked about things that uh, were very personal that were tied to race and internalized racism and and I tried to tie it together in a way that wasn't just a war story but was about individual learning, sharing um, and, and hearing from the co-authors uh, uh, where they gave we gave each other feedback about the stories and what should you know what we might want to do differently. But it, you it was like building a family and having a lot of trust and giving each other feedback and listening to the pain that was in the room.
3: Yeah, and I think that we knew each other, we thought we knew each other well, but it wasn't until we really started telling our stories that we got to know each other on a much deeper level. And I don't know if you've, how often you see that when you have people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different races, different sexual orientation, where people really can get that far down. But it seems to me that if you really want to have a conversation about race and you want to bring people together, you need to be willing to go that far down. So what do you think? What, what, what are some of the things that are most important... For people, like, say you have some people, a group of people from different, different backgrounds, maybe you have a white person, a black person, an Asian person, somebody's, somebody's from Africa, somebody's from um, African-American, somebody's from Japan, somebody from China, you have all different backgrounds. How can they start to have the conversation, particularly if they have not been around people who are different than them that much?
7: What would you suggest? I think one of the things is sometimes you start with the experiences that people may have in common mm-hmm. and uh, finding out, for example, that somebody is from the same hometown that you're from or um, even from different towns, but maybe there's something else that you have in common, your major in college or your particular vocation that you start from there. Maybe the similarities help you at least begin a conversation. And then from there, tell your story and see how there are differences in terms of what your life experience is compared to what somebody else's life experience is. And I think in particular in doing the work of diversity and inclusion, we encounter people from all walks of life who are a part of this journey around uh, making a difference in the world when it comes to how people relate to one another. And so, if you can kind of draw out what's going on with another person, not only are you learning about them, sometimes you're helping them learn about themselves in ways that they had never talked about before. And oftentimes in some of the training and workshops that I conduct, that's the reality of what happens with people is that it causes them to think about and talk about and perhaps write about some of their experiences that they don't think have any value or they don't necessarily remember them until you start talking about some aspect of being a human being on this planet and What brought you to who you are today? And then there's an opportunity to look at what were happening to you in your formative years What are some of the pivotal moments in your life that made a difference and may have? caused your journey in life to go in a particular direction that maybe you didn't have in mind before.
3: Now, have you had any experiences, say, like with a white person who you started talking to them, and you could tell that they were maybe a little afraid or they were a little standoffish? Have you had experiences with people like that, and then you were able to find a connection? Because in a way, if they're feeling freaked out, you actually are the facilitator in that conversation.
7: Yeah, and sometimes it's a matter of asking questions or it or just trying to clarify with them if you can kind of sense some uncomfortableness in them being with you, finding something that's sort of neutral to begin a conversation with, whether it's a, around what kind of salad you're eating or, you know, maybe the color you're wearing or something like that that might help you get into a uh, deeper conversation about who they are as an individual and you can't always find something in common with someone else. So if that's the case, talk about what's different and from a position of being appreciative of the difference that they have from you and hopefully finding a way to see that there's something positive about finding differences with one another.
3: Well, what would you say to someone who says, well, we are in trouble. We need to do this now. I don't have time for any of this touchy feeling getting to know each other. Let's just deal with the issues right now. I'm in a hurry. Well, what, what would you, what, what, How do you deal with that? What do you say to somebody like that? Is that helpful? Is it a hindrance? What?
6: I think talking about race and building relationships and learning to respect each other and hearing each other's stories is fundamental to any kind of movement. I think if a group doesn't build that sense of purpose or what the the norms are going to be between them, then you can jump into any conversation whether you're saying let's try to end racism now or Let's just have this conversation. You need to do it in a way that allows for people to be heard. Particularly, there are many examples where people of color have not been heard and and purposely not been heard. And that um, is part of the assault that's race-based on people of color where they're invisible and uh, they're treated as though they have nothing valuable to say. So if somebody says, all this touchy-feely, or let's just jump into it and let's do this or that, they're already conveying that they're not interested in getting to know who you are. And if you don't get to know who each other are in, in your stories, how can you sit down and talk about something as complex as race, uh, as painful as racial experiences, or as liberating as trying to figure out how we could Better um, work together to end racism, particularly as a policy. Wow. That's
3: actually, to me, that's very profound, because it's also a way of responding when somebody says, and a lot of times, not all the time, but I find that oftentimes the people who will say, well, I don't have time for this. Let's just deal with this racist, blah, blah, blah. They tend to be more. Now, I could be, you know, again, I'm not, overgeneralizing, but they tend to be more white people who might think that they know it all and they know how to deal with it. So I think that when you, when you have the mindset that, well, then you're not the champion, you're really still ignoring me if you don't want to hear my experience.
6: I, I, it will impact the quality of the dialogue and the level of depth in that relationship. People of color don't always want to be in a position where they have to bleed to educate white people on racism. White people always want to hear the story. Um, But then when they hear the stories and they hear the pain, they get oftentimes uncomfortable with it. And that's what I've experienced a lot in different groups. So sometimes to be able to have this kind of conversation in a meaningful way You have to be prepared. You have to be open, you have to be authentic. You have to be committed from the beginning to the end. And I have found that if people don't wanna do that, I don't necessarily need to have those kind of conversations with you. There's plenty of people I would love to have conversations with who are as committed to addressing racism as I am, and are willing to do like we did in the book, go deep, Share, make decisions, build relationships that are going to last a lifetime.
3: Do you have any examples? I mean, I'm just, I know I'm putting you both on the spot. uh, Do you have any examples of maybe a situation with somebody who is from a different culture, different background, and as a result of having a conversation, they moved the needle a little bit
7: or you moved yours? Well, one thing that comes to mind is using an exercise where we have people pair up with someone else and talk about the story of their name, and it can be their first name, their middle name, last name, or nickname, but just what is the story behind what your name is about, and it's a simple request, on the part of the facilitator to just get people talking and to talk about themselves, which the reality is a lot of people just aren't accustomed to doing that, especially in a a workshop or some sort of training situation. So by first modeling what a name story might look like and then having people share it with just one other person, it kind of gets their toe in the water of, being able to reveal something about themselves in a way that hopefully feels safe because it how you are named there's no question about whether it's right or wrong or maybe you know somebody who was, has that same name but it was for a different reason you your story is your story and once you kind of kind of lay the groundwork for people to understand that everybody has their own story about a variety of aspects of who they are as a person or their family or any of those other situations that go directly back to them as an individual. It kind of prepares the water to go deeper as you go along once you've established something as simple as describing where your name came from.
6: I think, again, I'd go back to looking at the issue of racism, one might assume that it's people of color and white, but it isn't always that way. Sometimes it also involves black and brown and other dimensions. But I think one of the learnings that occurred in writing of this book was that I had a chance to get to know Marvin and Sonny differently. And they were both really uniquely two different uh, human beings and different as African American men and uh, so I grew up not trust police so Marvin being a police officer <laughs> we had to have some conversation I I just said I was really lucky that I never got arrested by him when I was in Richmond and we'd mm-hmm. laugh and talk about it but what I also enjoyed is that um, Marvin um, was committed to the African American struggle, and he was um, very clear about what that that challenge was and and how to deal with it. And uh, he was very proud as African American man, and I was very proud as a Chicano. And sometimes we'd laugh when when we had uh, sporting events where we saw two boxers. Uh, 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 a Mexican boxer and a black boxer and we're rooting for our own to win and we're teasing each other you know and and it was funny because um, we also were able to talk about how we viewed each other's cultures and and got to learn more about each other I mean he certainly grew up with stuff about Mexicans I grew up with stuff about African Americans and our ability to get to a point where we trusted and loved each other and and loved each other's commitment to their community was, uh, I think, pretty profound because I know there were times when uh, Marvin challenged other African-Americans on statements they made about Chicanos or Mexican-Americans and on his job where he took the lead in making sure that diversity programs and services were being offered to uh, Latinos. Even when he was getting pushback from African Americans about why are you putting resources in that direction, and and you know I did the same uh, for African Americans, and and I think we could be allies for our own communities, and we had to learn to get past our own racism that we grew up with, that we were socialized with as well, and and I had that experience with Sonny that was different. Probably the first few years, Sonny and I didn't really talk or like each other. Really. And, I had no idea. Well, I think we had different experiences, you know, yeah. but, but over time, particularly writing the book, and as he got closer to the end of his life when we talked about it, he, he Sonny was very honest. He'd say, I don't like you at first because you thought you were all that. And I went, What? Really? <laughs> and and you know, we would just kind of go back and forth. But through Sid, I really got to see Sonny in a different way and learn to love Sonny in a different way Um, and he showed up uniquely as a black man and he would say what was on his mind and he would say things about people that look like me and others and we'd have to get into those kind of conversations to deal with our own perspectives and our own uh, assumptions but those were the kind of conversations that led to not only a good book but us telling these stories and building relationships where um, we, we learn to love each other very deeply. Well, what I'm hearing
3: is the story of how everybody got together. You got to know each other. I mean, and when I say you, I actually mean me because I'm also in it, too. But I'm hosting the program, so I can't just make it about me no matter how much I want to make it about me. But I just can't. But, uh, how once people got to know each other, you were actually able to deal with issues. You're able to deal with issues of race. You're able to deal with issues of bias. You're able to deal with issues of assumptions. And I think that so often people are afraid to have those conversations because they are afraid of being jumped on. And what, I know our experience was that we were actually able to share experiences. Like if I said something and maybe somebody said, oh, well, that's really a biased statement that I was able to listen because I trusted you.
6: Very well said.
7: Yeah. Absolutely. I think the bond and the level of trust that we built amongst the nine of us was really fantastic. And it was built over a few years where we really had some deep, hard conversations. And some of it was lighthearted as well. I mean, there were quite a few people who were jokesters amongst us. And so we kept everything really enjoyable and positive, And yet when we needed to go deep or clarify something that might be misunderstood or taken the wrong way by someone that we were able to come together and really talk it through.
3: Sometimes I will see in, and I see this a lot with young people, um, who like to say, and, and this is a generalization, but but it's common, well, we don't need to talk about race. Yeah, we'll just like kind of talk about race, but they don't really talk about it. They don't really talk about each other's experiences, and then something happens, and then people get hurt. People can get physically hurt, and nobody comes to their aid, or... Wait, wait a minute! What do you mean you have to go and get all black? You weren't so black before, and now all of a sudden you're talking about racism. What's this about? You know, and, and I've seen that happen. So, what's your reaction when you hear about those kinds of instances? What do you think people need to do?
6: I think we live in a time where we don't have the luxury of not talking about race. I think we're seeing racism creep into Policies. I think we're seeing racism affect financial commitment of health and human services. I think we're seeing racism play out amongst um, police. And this is leading to, to, to big, big division and low levels of trust. When close to 50% of the people in this country believe the president is racist, you can't avoid talking about racism. And you may have to talk about all of these different things. I may not like that statement that you, you know, someone says, well, why are you getting all brown on me? We, we weren't about that. I'm about all of this. It's not the only thing I am, but I am about all of this. Mm. And if you don't want to talk about some of those things, um, that's your choice. But I do. And I will encourage and influence this conversation in as many places as I can, particularly when it has direct impact on our communities.
3: Now, we've had some pretty deep conversations through the years, and I like to think about what is the most I mean there's a lot of I could say what's the most pressing issue around race I mean there's a lot of pressing issues but right now I'm going to ask you what you think we can do about this white people or primarily white people calling police on people of color primarily black people but not always black people for I don't know walking down the street with their hands in their pockets or I don't know, maybe combing their hair. I mean, what do you think some of the, what, what What are some of the, what do we do about that?
7: Well, one of the things that we can do about that is own up to the fact that uh, white supremacy and white privilege are institutionalized throughout all of our systems and it seems to be growing even though we seem to have been making progress I think we're state taking a step backwards and people are forgetting that all people are created equal under the law and th- this situation where people are getting singled out because they're a person of color doing everyday things shouldn't be the case and we need to make sure that Everybody is aware that it's inappropriate to do these things and start ensuring that there are enough complaints about what's going on and push back on people doing these things so that it doesn't become a situation where people get very casual about it and don't respond And then it just keeps escalating and escalating. I feel like we're kind of in that state now where people calling the police on somebody barbecuing on Lake Merritt. And then this uh, young girl who is selling bottles of water outside of her apartment gets the police called on her talking about a permit or a need for a permit or what have you that this kind of thing isn't appropriate. If you're only doing it for certain people who happen to be people of color, there's something wrong about doing that, and we need to raise awareness about how inappropriate it is and how we're singling out and um, identifying people of color as perpetrators of things that other people do without any consequences.
6: Let me let me jump in on this. Yeah, please, please. Because um, probably four years ago, maybe five, Andy Lopez, who was a fourteen-year-old um, Latino in Santa Rosa, California, um, was shot and killed, and shot a number of times. And somebody called into the sheriff's and said that there was a man walking along the freeway with a gun, and. He was a 13-year-old boy. He had an iPod with the earplugs in. The cops pulled up. They called to him to try to warn him. He didn't hear them. He turned around, and the story goes he had his gun, and he was shot a number of times. And I'm convinced that when people call in and said this person has a gun and this and that, it influences what the police officer is going to see when Mm -hmm. they get there. And they may be concerned for their life, but they're going to approach that situation differently. When you look at the number of African-American young men who've been killed recently, and the story is all the same. I was fearful for my life. Well, people are making these calls, and some of these calls are leading to a death sentence Yes. and you really need to ask yourself when you make that call is there something you're seeing um, that isn't based on bias or fear because that call could lead to somebody being shot it does not happen towards white people when calls come in or even when they have guns in the park but it is happening to people of color and I'm very upset with people thinking they can call the cops on people for just living their life.
3: And it seems to me that there's a response that, and and I'm not saying this to everybody, everybody out there, but particularly if you're a white person, uh, that, and you, if you're a white person and you see what's happening and you see that this is becoming a pattern, then I want you to take responsibility to talk to people. Talk to other people who are white about their fears. Talk to them about what their issues are. And if you see somebody calling the police or giving somebody a hard time for, for being a person of color, living their life, then I would hope, or I would demand, or I would want you to speak up and tell them to stop.
6: I agree wholeheartedly. Me too. The barbecue incident, mm-hmm. Oakland. Oh, like, oh, the woman that the took wife. That, the the white. Well, and there were there was a white woman that g- jumped in on that too. That like, was his
3: wife. That oh, was his okay. wife.
6: I didn't he know was, that. she
3: was white. Yeah,
6: and and calling out the other woman. I but there are other examples yeah. of, of where white people have stepped in and hey they hung around there until the cops came to make sure that the right story was being conveyed. I think you're right. I think white people need to call out other white people when racism is happening. And I think you need to make sure you're helping to educate people in these areas.
3: Well, thank you so much. Any last last words you'd like to say?
7: Well, thank you for having us. It's really a delight to talk about the stories that we wrote and sort of where we've gone from there, even though we're missing a couple of our co-authors now who have passed on. It's hopeful for me that people will hear this podcast and also perhaps read the stories and be encouraged to do something similar in how they interact with people.
3: So, okay. Now, what's the name of the book? And
7: where do you get it on Amazon? The Diversity Calling, Building Community, One Story at a Time. It's an anthology by The Dice Group. And it's available on Amazon. Thank you. And Juan, go ahead.
6: Well, uh, I I want to just follow up and say, if you want to have an impact on how racism is playing out in our country, make sure you're uh, encouraging people to sign up and. Vote in November because our votes are going to make a difference on whether or not racism is going to continue along the trajectory it is now or we're going to reclaim that uh, and and tell the story that we want to build in, in terms of building our community.
3: Thank you so much. This is Sima Lieberman, the inclusionist at Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, signing off. If you you want to help us continue this podcast and you agree with what we have to say or you want to hear more, please go to raceconvo.com and download the podcast, subscribe, share it with your friends. And if you'd like to help us continue on and on and on, then you can press the PayPal button and donate to keep our podcast going. Simma Lieberman, the inclusionist. Thank you again, Sid and Juan Lopez.
1: All your space chicken sci-fi comedy non-political humor needs go to timstesseract.com. Read fiction about the future of San Francisco after the water wars of 2121 in Jane 6. Ask a Jedi for important life hacks. Just to let everybody know, it's 10 o'clock. It is time for Sima Lieberman, Everyday Conversations on Race with Everyday People. Thank you guys for tuning in. She is going to be here momentarily. We, The, the bridge is an issue. I believe for everyone. So all those Uber drivers coming in to make the money here in the city. Tomorrow is a day that you get to vote. Please go out and do that wherever you are in the country. Hey, if you're in another country, vote there too. Vote early, vote often, and uh, tell people, How you want your government to be represented, representational government here. But today, everyday conversations on race with everyday people every Monday from 10 to noon here on mutinyradio.fm keep enjoying those commercials on the breaker for other awesome mutiny radio shows and thanks for tuning in to mutinyradio.fm everyday conversations on race with everyday people with Sima Lieberman, you guys are going to love it thanks for sticking around That's right Flat, black, plastic, vinyl, records, round, played, mixed. All for you every Saturday from noon to two by Scott O'Walker. Amazing artist, music DJ, vinyl enthusiast. That is flat black plastic.
0: Let's watch the on
2: YouTube with Michael Spiegelman. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for
1: They have a fun time at Pam deep in the mission where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere ten dollars. And ten dollars, I mean that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off for <laughs> is in duty this. But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh, en vieux, and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby. (laughs) How exciting for you, Mutiny Radio listener. There are six new shows here at MutinyRadio.fm. Monday nights at 10 o'clock it's time for free phone sex 415-550-0511 yes call in for free phone sex you will be recorded it is a podcast but will that phone sex be free Absolutely. 10 a.m. Mondays, it's time for everyday conversations on race with everyday people. With Simmel Lieberman, everyday people talking about race every week. Different everyday people talking about race. On Tuesdays, 10 o'clock, it's spiritual psychology with Renee McKenna. Meditate, it'll heal you. Then, at noon, stick around, Sergio Novoa brings you my limited view, talking about all things from his perspective. Then, on Thursdays, from 8 to 10, it's time for Beyond Your Comprehension with Clem. Exciting new shows here at Mutiny Radio. Also, the IC podcast. That's the Imprint City podcast coming soon. MutinyRadio.fm. New shows. You can have one, too. Contact director at MutinyRadio.fm to find out more details. Check us out at MutinyRadio.fm.
8: Precious.
3: with Everyday Conversations on Race for Everyday People, where we bring people together from different backgrounds to have conversations about race and bring race to the people. If you want to find out more about us, please go to www.raceconvo.com. Today, I am excited. I always love having great guests. And today, my great guest is an old friend of mine named Precious Stroud. Precious is the founder of the Black Woman Project and PJS Consulting. I'm going to let Precious tell you a little bit about herself. So,
8: Precious. Let's intro you to everybody. Hi Sima, thanks for having me this morning. Uh, Precious Stroud, um, founder of the Black Female Project, that's blackfemaleproject.org, and PJS Consultants. On PJS Consultants, we focus on narrative change and storytelling in the marketing communications world mostly for organizations that are focused on community wellness and good and the biggest platform that we do that work with is Black Female Project. So I look forward to the conversation today
3: hey precious would you just describe yourself to everybody since they can't see you and for those of you who can't see me but if you don't know me I'm Sima Lieberman my brand is the inclusionist I am a white Jewish woman and I am a baby boomer
8: and I'm from the Bronx and I live in Berkeley but I'm still from the Bronx a Gen X black woman um, born and raised in Berkeley California wow So, Precious, Mm -hmm. um, why do you think it's important for us to talk about race and why? I think it's important to talk about race because everything is racialized. So, if I lived in a place where people didn't consider race in their everyday experience and... um, much like classism, access to resource, access to opportunities wasn't influenced by race then I wouldn't need to talk about it. But from my perspective um, race impacts my life so I need to talk about it. So tell me why race impacts your life. Tell me how race impacts your life
3: Well, now and before.
8: Okay so now and before well the context, the historical context of kind of the country and society we live in, has the implications so if you take a group of people and you tell them hey you are going well, you're going to work for free based on your race and there will be in addition to that like let me be real about like torture um you know all of the things that africans experience once they came here um those who work came to work for free and to be enslaved the impact of that still is the resi- not residual even the real impact of that it affects how the society was set up and what rules were in place and who was able to have what access to either land or uh, or even basic services if someone believes that another person is inferior based on the color of their skin then that means that um, I you don't see me as successful so if you don't see me as successful it's really hard for you to promote me and you might say one might say well you know what that wasn't me I didn't do it well unfortunately somebody told you something and stuff was passed along and we see all these images that reinforce certain hierarchies and it continues to be that along Uh, the difference in class for black people isn't the differentiator in terms of lifespan, expectancy, whereas with some races, depending on your socioeconomic class, you live longer. That isn't necessarily the case for black people and if when it is, it still isn't that what you would expect of a what we call first world country because of the stress of dealing with racism and other isms along the way.
3: Yes, race, uh, racism definitely is a health crisis in the United States. Um, I want to ask you a question. When was the first... I know you were raised in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. When was the first time that you either... Interact with somebody different than you or when you first became
8: aware of race well I mean that is the gift of where we live that is so diverse that I can remember as early as first and second grade like my friends were Rumi Sandhu and Sabina Peterson Korean American and Indian American and we were friends that was just that was; Those were just happened to be my friends in class. It didn't mean I didn't have other friends because, of course, we were in a very uh, mixed race school. And that was by design. I think Berkeley did some things with the way that they um, broke out their districts or broke up the district in a way that made made an effort to ensure that public schools were diverse as they could be. Well, what was your first? Exp-
3: you remember what your first experience was with racism? Hmm, 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 hmm. So
8: the thing about this is interesting because I hear people aware of. Yeah, no, I totally hear you because. Um, Okay, so answering the question directly, it's very, very early because, of course, we get taught how to, as much as possible, deal with it. So it's not even something that I, that I remember, oh, that woman didn't speak to me one day. No, 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 you know, people didn't want to sit next to my little sister at Marine World and... Um, uh, a park where you know you see marine life, and my mom was like, You guys have to understand her experience is different because of her skin tone. Because my mother and my father are brown, like a medium tone color. Um, I came out much lighter, my baby sister came out much darker than them, and so um, my mother wanted to make sure I understood that she was gonna have a different experience based on the color of her skin, and we had to be aware of that and look out for her throughout our life. So it was very early. I remember going on road trips with my parents. And you know that deep exhale that happens for a child when you see someone maybe Hispanic or Latino okay we'll be okay at this restaurant Um, okay well we don't want to stop in this state right like we'll drive through this one and being very cognizant of that like people talk about road trips I am not okay with that Um, I know you know everybody do what you want and do what you love and live your life but I'm not going cross-country no
3: well, what do you think right now about what's going on in the country
8: overall around race and the messages that we're getting? Well, you can't um, you can't hide something forever, so it's gonna show up, and it's showing up in a big way. Um, I think the what I've heard is people saying, well. Um, it's the blowback from Obama. Well, it was there already. Um, all of us who are living in these experiences and conscious of it understand that that it's a it's a really ugly truth that nobody wants to talk about. The other thing is this notion of um, sweep it under the rug as if. Uh, the institution of Jim Crow when slavery didn't exist and that was so long ago it wasn't that long ago my great-grandmother my great-great-grandmother was first generation born free my mother knew her my sisters you know were babies when she was alive that's not that far removed which means the coping skills that she learned were passed on to my great-grandmother who was alive until I was in high school oh wow so you knew her oh yeah wow oh, yes my junior year of high school she passed away and she was living with us at the time so those coping skills that they learned they passed along so i have to now be responsible for unlearning some of that stuff that was for survival because now i'm supposed to have a different opportunity what were some of those things um well you know i have a deep sense of work ethic and and, and that's good but i also feel like if i don't work i'm gonna die yeah, Like, a, like I work to the point where my head will keep going, but my body really shouldn't. And so I'm trying to break that cycle and where it doesn't feel like so intense around this is linked to me being safe rather than just having the lifestyle that I, I want to enjoy and I've earned based on my credentials and the other things that I've worked so hard for. Does that answer your question? So when you say being safe, do you mean... Say more about that in terms of race. Yeah, so the work of um, Joy DeGruy around post-traumatic slave syndrome talks a lot about those, um, I won't be as eloquent as she is, but basically they're learned behaviors that we pass down for survival's sake. So if it wasn't okay to say something, right, you can't talk back, God forbid that, because there could be the punishment of death. Um, people were raped Um, It was just part of the culture. Like, that was the norm. Even though I'm not saying it was accepted, because... Of course, there was much more revolt than Nat Turner. If not, we wouldn't be here today. So there's always been resistance. But I do know that there are people who had to survive through those times, and there were coping skills like um, not talking back, making white people feel comfortable. The one thing I learned, I was reading uh nehisi Coates. Uh, I can't remember the name of the book right now, but the one he wrote kind of like a letter to his son. Yeah. I was reading the book. I was on vacation, and I had no idea. What came up for me was... I really know how to take care of white women like I can do that really well in a way that makes me safe I mean no, in I'm a way a- of making them comfortable yes in a way of making them comfortable with you mm-hmm. mm. and that's a, something I'm. I'm also letting go of because I have to find myself in all of that. Like, there's all this stuff on top of who I am that was put on for survival or even just to navigate successfully in certain environments. We hear the term code switching a lot. And we I was with an executive, and he didn't even know what the term meant. And he worked in um, high school education reform. He was a white guy? It was, yes. Well, I can see why he wouldn't underst- know mm-hmm.
3: that term. Because I run into a lot of people that, that don't know that term. Because first of all, you have to be interested. Mm-hmm. Mm. you have to be interested and you want to know what other people go through and if you're not interested you're not going to know a lot of times people say well you know I, I hear a lot of my friends say well white people should know or oh, by now they should know and I said you know there's a should and an is mm. and you can't make an assumption that people are interested you can't make an assumption that if there's an article about black people that people are going to read it because a lot of white people and not only white people you know, so I'm not disparaging any particular mm-hmm. group. I'm saying this is like a little more common, and that other people, if if it's if it's not related to my group, I'm not going to be bothered with it. And then when they do something like, oh my god, I didn't know. Well, you didn't care either. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't in your reality. And um, I mean, the reality is, if we're in this country and we care, we need to make. It things in our reality. So you started your business and you started Black Girl Pro- Black Woman Project, like female project. A young girl, what is Black Girl's Code? That's some that's mm-hmm. another program.
8: Kimberly Bright. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Good. <laughs> so could you talk a little bit about that program and some of the messages that you're trying to impart? Around not feeling like you have to take care of people who are different than you, but so that you can actually be
8: yourself. Sure. So w- I found myself kind of whispering in ha- at happy hours in the corner about what was going on at work and we'd get together me and so, and I'd do it with various groups of girlfriends. Hey, you know what herbs are you taking to manage your stress, you know, and everything revolved around stress at work. And then I started hearing um things like Well, I can't say that, you know, like feeling censored, like I couldn't talk about what was true. So for me, black female project, number one is about truth telling and affirmation. I need to be able to tell the truth about my experience and really about what I've observed in the workplace, because when I can tell the truth, then I can heal from it. And then I can have a sense of uh, liberation from those thoughts and behaviors that had been holding me back from even saying or telling the truth in the first place. So an example would be I can't tell my boss how I really feel and what just happened in that meeting because I might lose my job. They'll write me off as the angry black woman. Um, they don't like me when I talk anyway. They don't respect female leadership. So I'm navigating all the time. And this was the pressure that I kept feeling and thinking, wait, if my parents, right, in Berkeley, California, educators, I'm um, creative, uh, kept us around lots of, you know, was, I wouldn't say super Afro- Afrocentric, but certainly African conscious in terms of black is great. Like black Black is beautiful it was the 70s everybody was feeling really good about making a shift and then to get into a, a certain level in my professional realm and not be able to well I had been trained along the way of course right what my place was so when I started feeling like my body started to reject what was going on because I was trying to be honest and um navigate with integrity and all these strategies were used against me and there are certain strategies people have experiences I don't want to be too vague so well, yeah I'll yeah, yeah what I was going to ask if you could be if you could without
3: mentioning I probably don't want to mention who the organization oh, was no I won't but if you could just tell because i know if there's a lot of people listening that probably can relate well here's a lot of people listen who want to know so any tell us
8: give us a couple of examples sure um you're not meeting expectations um you're you you're not meeting expectations you oversold yourself in the interview <laughs> you really aren't doing this right well what exactly are you looking for well um you should know that already well there there are certain terms i guess they're kind of like um codes too that this thing what happens is so I start in this situation I was told hey you know like what what are you what are you bringing to the table well you interviewed me you hired me we're about six weeks in what exactly are you talking about like what do you need to see right now well you're not really you know what are you bringing to the table what have you accomplished so I start sharing you know things and the plans moving forward but what happened was there were never any expectations. Expectations established that are connected to an organizational strategy. So as I begin to start throwing darts at your moving target, that every time you tell me, now I'm feeling unsettled. So now I'm feeling and questioning my own ability to be successful because you're questioning my ability to be successful. And then add on the layer of, in meetings no one has the same cultural expression that I do because of course I because was brought in black woman brought in to diversify the organization didn't know that at the time mm. would have preferred for me to be a nice token and not try to do any work really just kind of do what we say and be quiet over there because our board and community said we had to diversify since we serve kids of color across the state you know maybe somebody should, who looks like that should be on the executive well in the director level so Um, What happened is the isolation I felt because I was working so hard to try and please, then I started self-isolating from family and friends because the work was so intense. And that's a pattern that we've noticed in Black Female Project is number one, people being told they can't, they're not meeting expectations, being organized out either by there's no more funding or hey, we had a really creative, one woman she said I was pushed out, they moved me into a fellowship, like because I was too vocal. Um, very creative ways of not having to deal with something that's different than what you're used to. And the fact that this, it may sound rudimentary, but it is, I don't see you as successful. Therefore, in my mind, even though you are doing things that would lead anyone else doing what you're doing would be considered a peer. For some reason, you just, just doesn't, it's not right. There's something about you that's just not meeting our our expectations and no 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 you know you're not going to be paid the same as everyone else you're not going to be paid the same as everybody else no way no way no what i was when i was negotiating my transition um and i said i think what you need to do is eliminate my position until you can figure out what you want to do with this area of work um the whole demeanor changed and i was asked well how are you going to take care of yourself what? How are you going to take care of yourself? They want them to know how you were going to take care of yourself? Because of course if if he's not going to take care of me, how am I going to make it? Oh, got it. I was going to say you could say, well, uh, with that <laughs> half a million dollar settlement that you're going to give me. By the way yeah. regarding that, so I talked to a couple of lawyers about the situation and this is what the the classic one I love so much that I would encourage people to Um, You know, if you have an opportunity or something's not right, say something about it or document it in some way. There was no HR department. It was a nonprofit organization. There was no way to, that I thought, to report, although there are places in the state. They said, look, there's no documentation that you ever complained. You never wrote a letter to the board. You never said anything was wrong. This is really, really, really unfortunate. It's Hmm. an awful situation and it happens every day.
3: Yeah, it happens every day, That so you never complained. Well, you know, one of the issues that I, I found like in my work with different organizations, uh, especially dealing and, and with people of, of color, that a lot of times, I'm saying a lot, I mean, this has happened en- enough times with clients that I've seen this, that you'll have somebody, maybe there'll be maybe one or two African-Americans in the organization. And people are a little bit intimidated, uncomfortable, awkward about what to say, so they kind of don't say anything. And then it's time for maybe initial uh, initial review and... They don't really, really review you because they're really uncomfortable and they don't really want to tell you that something needs improvement because then they're afraid of being called racist or whatever, or they just don't know how to say it. So they smile in your face. And then at the end of the year, you get a notice and the notice says that you're fired. And, and this has happened with enough of my clients of color, particularly black clients, particularly actually women, but men too, Mm. that at the end they said, well, nobody said anything to me. My reviews always said I was doing fine. Nothing specific, but they always said that I was doing fine, and then all of a sudden I'm fired. And they said if I would have known that something needed improvement from the very beginning, I could have worked on it. But what happens, and when when I've talked to some of these people who, not always, but oftentimes are white, so how come you didn't give them any type of criticism or constructive criticism? Well, I would have, but I didn't want to be accused of being racist. Oh, so you just waited and then you just fired them. Okay. So then it becomes well, let's really mainly hire people who look like us because I don't want to be uncomfortable and it's so much easier to tell somebody who looks like me that they're making a mistake. Because they won't accuse me of anything
8: does that sound so um, See that one? <laughs> so I before so black female project is celebrates black women who yeah, tell thrive about at it. work yeah. celebrating black women who thrive at work and preparing young black women for the realities of the workplace so how do black women navigate r- structural racism and sexism? and continue to move through leadership roles and have thriving careers. What we asked people to do initially, I was going to share my story and I said, well, we we have to more than mine if it's going to be useful. And so I asked some friends of mine and everybody was first the first thing people say is I don't really have a story to tell. And about 6 weeks later they're like, I think there's something I could share and then at the 3 month mark they're ready to write. And the the we did a year of writing and workshopping and the that we ask people to they have to relive all these experiences that they've tried to bury or get behind them that is very difficult it was the hardest thing i had done since my father passed away, to uncover all of those stories and get it into a narrative that might be actually useful or helpful to someone else. And we know when girls come in contact with the curriculum in that format, personal narrative, they won't get it all. But when something happens to them, they have a name for it now. And they'll remember that story. And the goal was to ask women, so this was happening, like for me, this was, I was sitting at my desk and the screen went blurry and i was like um so i'm um, i can't really see um it had gotten to the point where I started suffering with migraines and do you know how sometimes there's form of migraines? Yeah, that, ocular. Yeah. So the nurse working there, I mean, there was a nurse on site, a retired nurse, and she said, you know, maybe you should go home if you can't see. And I'm like, no, no, no. I have to... The, <laughs> thought, that, the thought that I needed to do something rather than take yeah. care of myself is a sign that there was something very wrong. But um, what I was getting at was Black Female Project. So um, women had to tell these stories. So we then asked them, what did you have stop and think about that moment how did you feel what happened to your body what kind of support system did you have in place to get through that so we know autoimmune diseases show up a lot we know hair loss shows up a lot and um, when women are able to we had one contributor who said look i don't care what you do with my story i just need to tell it and let it go so just being able to document it is freeing for the women we thought we were doing something for the girls coming behind us and it turned out to be a healing project for us as well Wow! how many women um so um we have personal narratives of about 15 well maybe 20 including yeah. the anonymous ones um, the first 9 were released in 2018 so the inaugural collection is available for download on the website at www.blackfemaleproject.org and then we have a podcast at um, on SoundCloud to collect other women's stories wow mm-hmm. and then we've done live events we had a conversation a series in New York City, Washington D.C. and and Oakland and then we also wow. have live events from time to time in the Bay Area Wow I, and you started this five, almost five years ago I mean this is your child yes yes so women you were asking about how many women so we looked at this also as a research project so during those live events and during our conversations we have been collecting data all this time and the number one thing people enjoy is just sitting in a room where they can tell, see people who look like them, whether they speak or not, and feel affirmed. Wow.
3: I'm, first of all, I'm just really amazed. And when you started it, i am mean, got to ask, you, did you start it all by yourself? And what was the
8: first thing that you did in order to start it? And who did you talk to to, to get it going? So the first thing I did was look for something like this. Because I just wanted a resource to understand what was going on with me. If my parents had prepared me well, and I was doing... This this is what we tell girls, uh, black girls in particular. Work really hard, do what you're supposed to do, go to college, and you'll be fine. And then somebody pulls a rug up from under you, and you had no idea that there are some strategies that have been tested, and they're tried, and they work really well to make people unsettled at work. And there are certain things that work really well for black women. Like what? Like like telling me that I haven't met expectations well you know what I meet expectations everywhere I go so what exactly are you talking about like this is problematic for me because I work so hard and most of us you know you gotta have a certain level of intellect to get into certain places and be able to you know we're sensing motivations and we're analyzing situations of course this is the thing that this is maybe you can help me with this I believe implicit bias exists. However, if I have to analyze everyone around me, and it's on me for my for me to be useful in any situation, to try to have a basic understanding of the person sitting next to me. I then am infuriated at the thought that I, someone else can write it off as, well, it was just implicit bias I didn't know. And now of course, I'm not, you know, I understand. I've seen some of the science. Yes, I'm getting there, but that rubs me the wrong way because I think it's a, it's helping people be comfortable talking about it when it really goes back to what you said before. I didn't have to care, so I just didn't do it. I didn't have to care that you were gonna show up different than me. I didn't have to care that um, when I perceived you as angry, it could have been something else, right? So when, when the um, old boss says to me, well, you seem really angry. And I'm saying to him, well, how are you defining that? And the, the, ju- the woman from Long Island who's sitting across from both of us gets rolls back in her chair like, oh, this is about to be real good. Let me relax and watch. <laughs> because of course, I'm not angry. I'm very impassioned about what I'm talking about. You're uncomfortable because passion in your sphere looks different, and women may or may not, you know, the feistiness of um, a small-framed woman who you don't who you feel like you have control over versus a different type of woman showing up and taking up space, there's something that rises up for you. I don't have to like totally understand all the reasons why, but you don't get to call me angry. And some people are like, yeah, call me angry, whatever. But for me, that's too easy. Like, what else do you have? Like, let's, can we, if you're gonna analyze me, let's talk about why you use that word in my name in the same sentence. So um, being able to have that conversation isn't always a possible. It And your point, I saw a lot in the research, you asked me how do we start the project or how did I start the project? So I started doing research and asking people and looking for this kind of work and a lot of it exists. What I wasn't, and I think there's more going on in college campuses and research departments but that's really hard to get in to find until you either go there or get a contact so I was looking for black female experiences detailed around work experience there is a seminal work our separate ways which studies the first group of women who came into corporate and it looks at black women and white women and tells their stories and they have a lot of data with that project it was very helpful as we started So I started, I asked a few people to write stories with mine so that we could then ask a bigger group to write stories and submit. The women who were writing, two of them approached me on separate occasions and asked for a time to meet the other women who were submitting. I thought we'd meet a few times while they were writing, and that would be it for the live events. And here we are four years later, still convening women in conversations and now partnering with other organizations like... um, um, NCNW, start Nash. I NCNW. You'll have to look that up because I cannot remember right now all of the acronym. A um, Black Teacher Project. We will have our fourth annual conversation with them in um, for Women's History Month. We have a format where the women, Black women in the center, have a conversation, much like what we do when it's Black women closed door only. Other people can come and observe, anyone, but we give the women an opportunity to step out. There's no Q&A. We do a small workshop with the people who are observing so they can process what they've heard, but we protect those women at all costs. So what we've learned over the last couple of years testing this out and modifying it when people ask us, can you modify here or there? What we learned is that that is still not safe for women might be a black man who speaks up and is uncomfortable because he's looking for a solution and we're just trying to talk about the reality of what happened. We're trying to be safe and say out loud that this happened to us at work. Well, you should have done this and that. See, our format was right. Let's keep that circle closed. You have the privilege to observe.
3: So if there's any young black women listening to this podcast,
8: Mm -hmm.
3: and we have all kinds of people who listen to this podcast. Mm -hmm would you suggest would you suggest that that they that they contact you
8: sure i mean yes and check out black female project also listen to the podcast we've had people write to us about the podcast saying this affirmed me so much i knew i wasn't alone but even preparing for girls start navigating in school like school age girls are figuring out you know what I get treated differently the work of African American female excellence at the Oakland Unified School District more and more is going to come out of that department but they have documented and are talking about the sexual harassment um, and the kicking girls out of class and what's happening with black girls at, at, and they're being treated differently than other girls in the, the school we start understanding that very early my focus is on the work because that's where I was living at the time and that's what I needed to address. So for young girls, number one, you're not alone. You woke up brilliant. You're gonna be brilliant no no matter what level. I see a lot of junior practitioners too because I love to, you know, part of, I came from educators. I love to teach in my area of focus. So don't let people tell you or give you some weird vibe that you're not a director or you're not a this or that and therefore your value is less. Every single person in the orga- organization is needed for the organization to be functional. If you were not there, there would be a problem. Something would be missing. Understand you woke up brilliant, no matter what anybody says, and believe that. That's something I didn't do. I let myself be defined by other people. The other thing is see yourself through your own eyes. And what I mean by that is, as we've um, I'm facilitated conversations and also, um, Our leadership team, I'll mention Fern Stroud, my sister, um, Che Abram, um, gifted, gifted speaker and diversity specialist in higher ed, as well as um, members of our advisory board have, as we facilitate conversations uh, over the last four years have, the one thing that comes up, A, there's never enough time. People are like, all of our evaluations, can it be longer? Can it be longer? Um, can we meet more often? The other thing, the reason why is because um, women need to, how can I say this? You are, you are fine the way you are. See yourself through your own eyes. Women will get up at all ages. It's fascinating. And they talk about themselves through the lens of their bosses through the lens of their um you know their partners or boyfriends through the lens of all these other people but they don't see themselves so we have mirrors that we got and we on the back of it says black female project and we say if you want to see power and beauty turn it over whenever you need to and they turn it over and they see themselves in the reflection and women of all ages flip out because you have to see yourself for yourself and next year we really want to tackle this question of how do I now now that I'm aware of what's going on and I'm kind of paying attention you can live above all the stuff to maintain the status quo the strategies used against people you know a lot of women of color show up in the workplace and have similar outcomes we come from different places but it is similar outcomes you know being disregarded being hypersexualized, black women being asked to dance at work events I'm being touched inappropriately. All of this, um, you know, backing out from under of of after installing some IT stuff, and being told, yeah, that's where I like women on the, you know, on their knees, and no repercussion. Yeah. Um. So. And also,
3: and 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 unfortunately, the environment in our country is not, is getting less and less supportive. It's it's more of a, so what? You know, I want to take <laughs> a break for a second and then I, I want to come back and I want to start talking about, I want to talk about the angry black woman and also in situations like yours, responses that 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 women can give so i just want to tell people this is sima lieberman the inclusionist listening to everyday conversations on race with everyday people and if for everyday people if you want to know more go to www.raceconvo.com and we are recording this session at mutiny radio you can go to mutinyradio.fm to listen to my podcast and other podcasts and if you are looking for a place to record your podcast or do a recording, I highly recommend coming down to mutinyradio.com, dot, mutinyradio.fm and talking to Pam. Okay, back to you, Precious Stroud, where we're talking Thanks to Precious Stroud, and we're talking them. about her project, the Black Women's Project, and about being a black female entrepreneur and some of the issues in the workplace. I want to talk about the whole idea of the angry black woman and because you were talking about showing some passion or emotion and then being told that you were angry. Is this something that is common?
8: in the workplace. why Sima? Yes, it is. (laughs) Um, Well, there's the whole narrative that gets played out on most of the media channels. I mean, if you want to see black women, I I wonder if I Googled black women, what might show, you know, I should do that and see how many positive versus what we consider negative images would show up. But um, in the culture right now, or at least pop culture, it's interesting though because we have like black women rock and um you know black women thrive and black women leading and all of these things that have emerged through social media and other positive avenues and black women gathering in groups all over the country we kind of got in this groove it was obviously happening it was happening we were in the tide at the time so yeah you were asking um, angry black woman does it happen yes it happens why does it happen because that's easier than talking to me you can just label me um, also we've all been bought into these narratives that's what I'm. That's where I was going um, is that next year what we want to do is start thinking about how do we and forgive the term I gotta find another one deconstruct the internalized racism and the internalized sexism if we can start doing that then we see ourselves more clearly when the images show up we aren't as influenced and I know this is work that'll be generational work and at the same time, I mean, we're moving in that direction as a as a culture and as a people, for sure. Like, yes, okay, now we're calling out. When we started this work and writing down white supremacy or writing down, like, power, dominant power structure, those terms when the, we thought was we so radical in the stories. And now they're on the TV all the time. Institutional racism is uh, affecting Hispanic women at this rate. You're hearing all these statistics and all these numbers. Um, Shell Sandberg's work around um, their putting out some new um reports that are interesting you know love or hate leaning in as black women say we've been leaning in a long time and then i heard of interesting i don't know who this gentleman was i heard him on the radio the other week talking about so we tell women lean in we're not changing the system we just tell them lean in